This evening, we're continuing our overview of the New Testament book titled Ephesians. And as you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, I want to take a moment to remind you that Paul wrote this letter during his first Roman imprisonment. Therefore, rather than allowing his time in prison to turn him into a bitter believer, and it certainly could have done that, but, but he said no to that. And he saw this as an opportunity to encourage the Christians who were there in Ephesus. You know, Paul was always a man on the go, and uh, I truly believe that we wouldn't have the epistles of Paul had it not been for uh, some of those uh, times in prison. And so we can be grateful for Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Because of that, we have this letter written to the church in Ephesus. And as we continue to make our way through Ephesus, I I want to remind you, it was back in the first chapter of this epistle where Paul reminded his readers about all of the blessings that the born-again believer receives in Christ Jesus. By way of review, it'll help you to remember that Paul began this letter by assuring his audience that those who trust in Jesus are chosen and predestined to become the adopted children of God. Also, those who trust in Jesus are accepted in the beloved. Those who trust in Jesus have been redeemed through his blood, which results in our forgiveness. Those who trust in Jesus are able to understand the mystery of his will. Those who trust in Jesus have obtained an inheritance according to the predetermined purpose of God. Those who trust in Jesus have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Those who trust in Jesus receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. And those who trust in Jesus experience the exceeding greatness of his resurrection power. Uh, That's a basic summary of the first chapter. And now here in our text tonight, as we turn our attention to Ephesians chapter two, we find Paul, he's continuing now to describe the benefits that are bestowed upon those who believe in Jesus. And with this as the focus, let's turn our attention now to Ephesians 2. I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here Paul declares, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now here in the opening verses of this chapter, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to grasp the transformation that occurs when a person places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we convert to the Christian faith, there is a conversion that begins to happen within us. And to put it simply, the born again believer, first of all, has been converted from the curse of death to the promise of life. Isn't that incredible? When we convert to the Christian faith by by, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are converted from the curse of death to the promise of life. Notice again, there in the beginning of verse one, here again Paul declares, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now for the sake of clarity, it's important to note that Paul wasn't suggesting that an unbeliever is a lifeless corpse. We don't want to strain the limits of what he's actually saying. The unbeliever is spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. And what this means is, is, is that uh, the, the, the person who is born is born spiritually dead. 
The reason why is because the unbeliever is still under the curse of original sin. I want to consider again how Paul puts it here in this epistle. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 1. Here again, Paul declares, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And notice, we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's describing the unrepentant unbeliever as those who walk according to the course of this world, uh, which, uh, you know, it's important to note that the course of this world is under the influence of the evil entity that Paul here refers to as the prince of the power of the air. That's what he says there in the middle of verse 2. The course of this world is in accord with the prince of the power of the air, and according to Paul, this is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This, of course, is a reference to the devil. And you better believe that the devil has been manipulating mankind ever since that day when he deceived Eve by convincing her that it was good to consume that forbidden fruit. Sadly, Eve agreed. She ate the forbidden fruit. And not only that, but she also gave to Adam, and he also ate of it. And in response to their sin, the Lord placed a curse on them and the entire creation, which resulted in the stain of original sin. It's for this reason that Paul described every person as children of wrath by our very nature. This, of course, is a reference to the fallen nature that every person receives at the moment of conception. At the moment of conception, the child is by nature a child of wrath. It's this fallen nature which was passed down through procreation that causes the unbeliever to then conduct themselves according to the lusts of their fallen flesh. It's also the fallen nature that deprives the unrepentant unbeliever. Uh, actually, it, 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 it drives them to a depraved lifestyle so that they'll, they, they want to fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And finally, it's this fallen nature that was, uh, that was caused by the stain of original sin uh, that causes the offspring of Adam to be born spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And so every beautiful little baby that's just born is born spiritually dead. That's why we must be born again, born of the Spirit. And in order to understand how a baby is born spiritually dead, we should consider something that Paul wrote in his letter to the Christians in Rome. And so if you would hold your place here in the book of Ephesians, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to the book of Romans. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. And as you make your way to the fifth chapter of Romans, I want to take a moment to remind you that the descendants of Adam have been born under the federal headship of Adam. The descendants of Adam, this is all of us, we were all born under the federal headship of Adam. And what this means is that the Lord allowed Adam to represent the entire human race as our federal head. And it's for this reason that the sin of Adam, as well as the corresponding curse, is automatically applied to every person at the moment of conception because we are the descendants of Adam. As a result, every baby is born a child of wrath. And the reason why is because we're born with a fallen nature. 
But now, before you insist that this curse is completely unfair to to all of us, uh, we ought to consider, first of all, the divine reasoning behind the Lord's decision. If you would look with me there at Romans chapter 5, I want to begin reading at verse 14. Here Paul tells us that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification." For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Rome to understand the reason for why the Lord allowed Adam to represent us in his sin. He's helping us to to understand the, the, the holy logic that God was using when he decided to allow Adam to become our federal head in his decision to sin. God the Father allowed Adam to act as our federal head through his transgression there in the garden so that he could also allow Jesus to act as our federal head there on the cross. And as the sin of Adam has been accounted or credited to our account just by nature of our birth, those who are born again can now be under the federal headship of Jesus Christ and his righteousness then is applied to our spiritual account. While it's true that the unrepentant unbeliever is condemned according to the curse of Adam, it's also true that those who trust in the cross of Christ have received an abundance of grace which includes the gift of righteousness by which we will reign in life forevermore through Jesus Christ. And in this way, the Christian has been converted from the curse of death to the promise of life in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but the Christian has also been converted from sinful corruption to positional perfection. And if you would look with me here, uh, let's uh, look again back at Ephesians chapter two. I wanna draw your attention to Ephesians chapter two, beginning there at verse four. Uh, Here Paul goes on to declare, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's reminding his readers that it was the love of the Lord that led him to provide us with saving grace. In other words, God the Father didn't send his son to save us because we were good enough to be saved. He didn't look down the corridor of time and, 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 and say, oh, these people are gonna you know, work hard to to earn this salvation, and so I'll send my son. No. He didn't look down the corridor of time and, and, and see a, a, a bunch of people who deserve the grace of God. Nope. No, instead the father sent his son to save us because he is a gracious God who loves us. And it's as simple as that. I like the way that Jesus put it in John chapter three. 
There he assures his audience that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Simply put, the father sent his son to save us because he loves us and he loves us more than we deserve. And according to Paul, those who receive this gift of grace have been converted from the sinful corruption of Adam to the positional perfection which is found in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at Ephesians chapter 2. I want to draw your attention back to verse 5 where Paul again writes, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, what does all this mean that we've been raised up and are now seated together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? I'm pretty certain right now that we're seated here in South Austin and not in heaven. So how can we be both seated here in South Austin and seated in heavenly places at the same time? What, what was Paul getting at here? Well, I think that Paul explains it best in Colossians chapter three. It's Colossians three, verse three, where he declares, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christian, listen, the life of the believer has been hidden with Christ in God. Spiritually speaking, we are positionally in Christ even right now. And where is Christ? Well, physically, he's seated at the throne of grace. He's taken up residence within, within the, uh, the, the soul of every born-again believer, but, but physically, he's seated at the throne of grace. And seeing how Jesus is currently seated in heaven at the throne of, th throne of grace, then he is representing us there on that throne. And those who are in Christ then are also positionally seated together with him in heavenly places. And what this means then is that God the Father no longer sees us as sinners, but rather as saints who are positionally perfect in Christ Jesus because his righteousness has covered us. This is what we refer to as positional perfection. And if we're currently seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, then the Father sees us as positionally perfect in Christ. So we see then that the Christian has been converted from the curse of death to the promise of life. And not only that, but the Christian has also been converted from the sinful corruption that we received from Adam to the positional perfection that we received on the day when our life was hidden in Christ Jesus. That's the day of our salvation. And while it's true that we are still seated right here on earth, it's also true that there's coming a day when we will finally enjoy all of the exceeding riches of his grace, which have been guaranteed to those who trust in Jesus Christ. And with this as the focus, I want to consider how Paul puts it uh, here in his epistle to the Christians in Ephesus. If you would look with me there at Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 8. Here Paul goes on to declare, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In these verses we find Paul, he's stating with all clarity that the salvation of the Lord, it's a gift of grace. 
And as a gift of grace, it's received by faith and by faith alone. And while it's true that the Lord will call every Christian to accomplish the good works that he's prepared for us, it's also true that our conversion to Christ occurs at the very moment when the believer receives by faith the free gift of grace. Paul drove this point home in Romans chapter 11. It's there where he tells us that if salvation is by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. In other words, as Paul here is writing about the remnant of Israel, he's saying, hey, look, it can't be of both. There's not a gospel where you can have a little bit of grace and a little bit of work and put them together and you get salvation. No. It's either of grace or it's of works. But not of both. Those who insist that people could be saved by a mixture of works and grace, they're actually guilty of preaching a false gospel. And in order to further prove my point, let's look again there at verse 8 where Paul declares, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, we must not fail to notice there that Paul here is referring to the salvation of the believer as something that has occurred in the past. That's right, those who trust in Jesus can rejoice in knowing that we have been saved by faith. If you receive the grace of God, you're saved at that moment, positionally perfect in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if you're a born-again believer, you can say, I have been saved by faith. And while Paul encouraged every Christian to accomplish the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us, he also assured us that those who receive God's gift of grace by faith in Jesus Christ, we've already been converted from judicial condemnation to merciful salvation. As a result, the Christian has been also converted from a spiritual state of hopelessness uh, to the hope of glory. And uh, with this as our focus, I want to consider the point that Paul now goes on to make, beginning at verse 11. Uh, Here Paul declares, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience to realize that before Christ came, the Gentiles were hopelessly lost as they followed after their worthless idols and their pagan philosophers. And it's there in verse 12 that he highlights that at that point in time, you were without Christ. Now, that's uh, one of the saddest things that you can say about a person, that they are without Christ. He says that they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise. And we find those covenants of promise all throughout the Old Testament. Specifically, it's the covenant of promise that points to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But without Christ, we see there at the end of verse 12 that they had no hope and they were without God in the world. Simply put, without Christ, a person is hopelessly lost. But now that Jesus has died for our sins, now both Jew and Gentile alike can be converted from hopelessness to the hope of glory. 
I like the way that Paul puts it in Colossians chapter one where he tells us that God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. In Christ we're seated in heavenly places even right now, but also we're here in South Austin seated in, the, in this auditorium and we can rejoice knowing that while we're positionally there with Jesus on the throne of grace, he's literally in us right now providing us with the hope of glory. Before we came to faith in Jesus, we were hopelessly lost, but now those who have been brought near to him through his blood, we can live with a heart that's filled with hope as we look forward to the day when we will finally receive the exceeding riches of his grace, which will bring us into everlasting glory. And not only have we been converted from hopelessness to the hope of glory, but Christians have also been converted from separation to reconciliation. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me again here at Ephesians chapter two, I wanna begin reading at verse 14. Here Paul assured his audience that he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit, to the Father. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's describing the way that the blood of Jesus has become the basis for our reconciliation. And just to be clear, listen, uh, there needed to be reconciliation because there was once a wall of separation uh, that was found there in the temple. There was a wall in the temple that separated the children of Israel from the Gentile worshipers. The Gentile worshipers would come to, to worship God, but they couldn't enter all the, all the way in. They would have to stay in the court of the Gentiles, and there was a wall of separation, even a sign that said any Gentile that passes this point is going to die. So there was enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles, even there in the temple. Not only that, but there was also a wall of separation that separated you know, the Jewish women from the Jewish men. And finally, there was a, a wall that separated the Holy of Holies from everyone except for the high priest. And he was only allowed to enter the Holy of Holies once a year. There at the temple, you found walls of separation all over the place. Thankfully, the blood of Jesus Christ has ended all of this separation. And this separation comes through reconciliation. For example, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has secured racial reconciliation between the Jew and the Gentile. And now Jews and Gentiles can go and worship God together as we celebrate the peace that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. No longer is there the Gentile court and the, and the inner court that, that the Jews can go into. No, we have reconciliation in Christ Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus has also secured for us spiritual reconciliation, and, and this reconciliation happens between uh, the sinner and God. This was precisely the point that Paul was making there in verse 15, where he assures his audience that Jesus has abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Paul elaborated on this reconciliation there in verse 16, where he tells us that Jesus might reconcile them both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. The enmity, which came from the law of commandments, has been put to death, where? On the cross. 
In other words, both Jew and Gentile alike can now both receive spiritual reconciliation through the sacrifice that Jesus offered when he died for our sins on the cross. I like the way that Paul put it in Colossians chapter 2. There he tells us that Jesus wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In this way, he has provided every sinner with the possibility of spiritual reconciliation. This was precisely the point that Paul goes on to make there in verse 18. Notice with me there in verse 18 where he declares, for through him we both, speaking of Jew and Gentile, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. In other words, it's through the cross of Christ that every person, regardless of their race, every person can come to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And as we consider what Paul is saying here, we must not fail to to notice the, the Trinity here. Here we find the doctrine of the Trinity where God the Son, Jesus Christ, dies for our sins and provides us access to the Holy Spirit of God who then provides us access to God the Father. Those who trust in Jesus Christ have not only been reconciled to the Son, but we've been reconciled to the Holy Spirit. And not only to the Holy Spirit, but also to the Father. Through the cross of Christ, Jesus has reconciled us to all three persons within the triune Godhead. Finally, we should consider how the Lord Jesus has given us a ministry of reconciliation. And with this as the focus, hold your place here in Ephesians 2. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as you make your way to the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, I want to take a moment to point out that the sacrifice of our Savior has actually made it possible for every person uh, to be reconciled to God. He not only died for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And he's enabled every person to be reconciled to the Father through his cross. Not only that, but listen, we know that the Lord isn't willing that any should perish, but he desires all to uh, come to repentance. He, he, He has a plan for everyone to be reconciled. And yet we have to understand that he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, knowing that uh, some people are going to reject this free gift of grace. But it won't be for the trying. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you would uh, look with me there, beginning at verse 18. Here Paul writes, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us, notice, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christian, listen, the Lord has given us this incredible ministry of reconciliation. And what this means is that the Lord is calling every Christian to go out and reach the unbelievers around us so that they too might be converted from the religious separation which is caused by the law to the spiritual reconciliation that we receive when we trust in the cross of Christ. God wants to plead through us. God wants to to send us out to implore unbelievers on Christ's behalf that they might repent 
and be reconciled to God by faith in the sacrifice of our Savior. It's also important to understand that this spiritual reconciliation has provided every believer with a brand new home and a brand new family which is built upon an everlasting foundation. And with this as the focus, if you would, uh, let's make our way back to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to pick up our study here in the final verses of this chapter. Uh, look with me there, beginning at verse 19. Here Paul declares, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Ephesus to understand that the, the spiritual reconciliation that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ has not only removed the, the walls of separation that were found there in the temple, uh, but the spiritual reconciliation has also enabled every believer to now become a dwelling place of God in the spirit. You see, uh, we no longer need a temple during the church age, and the reason why is because, uh, Christian, we are the temple. We are the holy temple of the Lord. The Spirit of God is no longer dwelling in the Holy of Holies there on Temple Mount. No, he's dwelling within the believer. The spiritual structure that we call the church, it's not this building, it's, it's believers. And this church is being built upon the foundational teachings written by the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Seeing how this spiritual structure is being fitted together, as uh, Paul says, it's continuing to grow into a holy temple in the Lord, uh, we must not fail to realize that every new convert to the Christian faith increases the size of God's house as the descendants of Adam become fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God by faith in Jesus Christ. When a person repents and trusts in Jesus Christ, they're no longer under the federal headship of Adam. We now find ourselves under the federal headship of Jesus Christ and in this way we are adopted children of God because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now when we get to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to consider the structure of the church in, in much greater detail. We're going to learn more about the foundation. We're going to learn more about the apostles and the prophets and the hierarchy that the Lord has uh, orchestrated. But for, for now, uh, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Uh, we'll study all that when we get to Ephesians 4. Uh, for, for now, I just want to conclude our study by just recapping all the benefits that are bestowed upon those who believe in Jesus Christ. According to Paul, those who trust in Jesus Christ have been converted from the curse of death to the promise of life. Those who trust in Jesus Christ have also been converted from sinful corruption to positional perfection. Those who trust in Jesus Christ have been converted from judicial condemnation to merciful salvation. Those who trust in Jesus Christ have been converted from a spiritual state of hopelessness to the hope of glory. Those who trust in Jesus Christ have been converted from religious separation to spiritual reconciliation. And those who trust in Jesus Christ have been converted from the headship of Adam to the household of God. And as we consider all of these blessings bestowed upon those who convert to the Christian faith, uh, we ought to be extremely excited about the ministry of reconciliation. We shouldn't see this as busy work, and we shouldn't be you know, afraid of evangelism, and we shouldn't be uh, concerned about God's call to send us out and implore unbelievers to be reconciled to God. This, this should be exciting for us. If we really grasp all of the benefits, if we really grasp everything that we have in Jesus Christ, we ought to be super excited to go and share our faith. Now, just think about it for a moment. 
You know, let's put this in in more secular terms here. What if you were a multi-billionaire? What if you just had billions and billions of dollars and, and, and you had no concern about ever losing any of it? Would you just hoard all that money for yourself? Or would you want to go and share your wealth with others? Would you want to go be a blessing to those who were needy? Wouldn't you go out and look for those less fortunate so that you could bestow upon them the blessings that you have? I know that if I were a billionaire, I would be super excited to just share all that wealth wherever I could. It wouldn't be something I, that was, oh, this is such, you know, I'm scared to go and share this wealth. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that people are going to reject me if I, if I share this wealth. You know, it'd be super exciting to just be able to bless others in that way, right? Well, think about this in a spiritual sense now. That's exactly what evangelism is all about. We've received blessings beyond measure. We've been promised the exceeding riches of God's grace. Why would we hoard this? Why would we keep this to ourselves? When we set out to accomplish the ministry of reconciliation, we're taking the the, the billions and billions of blessings that we've received and we're just saying, hey, you want some of this? And of course we're going to find those people are, no, I don't don't want any of that. Okay, I'll go share it with somebody else then. Every evangelistic endeavor provides us with the opportunity to share the exceeding riches of God's grace with those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. If you saw someone there on the side of the road and, and, and they were half dead and just needed you know, help with resuscitation, would you, would you just pass them by or would you try to help? The unbelievers around us, they're dead in trespasses and sins. They're still under the federal headship of Adam. And they need help. They need someone to explain to them the gospel of grace so they can be reconciled to God. Rather than hoarding the gracious blessings that we've received from the Lord, rather than passing by those who are dead in their trespasses and sins without a care or concern, let's go out and preach the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Let's do this every chance we get. And as we do, we can rejoice in knowing that there will be some along the way who will become fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's pray.